0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 15 through 18.
1: We are indeed in the book of Jeremiah, and um, it's quite a book. It's a heavy book, of course, Uh, Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. It's certainly not a light, quick narrative. It's a heavy, heavy trip. Jeremiah is um, torn deeply asunder in his knowledge of the certainty of the coming judgment for his nation and yet the hope that they might repent. He preaches a message of repentance and yet knowing the Lord has told them that they're not going to hear and that the judgment is certain. Tough spot to be in. And as we study the book of Jeremiah, we are going to be sensitive to it at several levels. One level, of course, is the historical one. That is, there really was a Jeremiah, and he really had a message for Judah. A hundred years earlier, the northern kingdom, Israel, did not repent, but continued to pursue idolatry, degenerate, till the Lord finally, in accordance with the words of his prophets up north, sent them into slavery by the Assyrians, Judah, the southern kingdom, had a hundred years advantage in watching that God did what he said he was going to do. He took them into slavery and and, uh, up north, and and part of Jeremiah's message is, hey, guys, we are that much more accountable. You saw what happened to Israel. You should realize that God is going to be just as certain, just as diligent, just as consistent in his posture with you, that without a national repentance, God will use your enemies' to bring on judgment. So there is a historical message that Jeremiah hammers away at. There's a personal message that we will sort of try not to miss as we go through, because the words that God speaks to Judah through Jeremiah apply to you and I. You and I may not feel that we have idols and incense in our home. We don't feel that we're idol worshipers, but we need to think very carefully of what idolatry really is the substitution of anything. In God's place in our lives. So you and I have our idols too. In fact, I, I get handed here. Jerry handed me a tape that he prepared for me, but he also pointed out that he's equalized it so that it will survive over the noise of a Ferrari engine. So I, on the one hand, I'm grateful. On the other hand, I figure the Holy Spirit's trying to reach me through what uh, could easily be a distraction also. Second level of Jeremiah, personal. You and I, what God says to us Uh, through Jeremiah, applies to your life and mine. There's a third level that I suggest tentatively, and that is just as Jeremiah, through the inside of the Holy Spirit, grieved as he had to preside over the death of his nation. We may, too, be in the same boat. If God doesn't bring the United States to repentance, then we are even less, or I should say, even more culpable uh, than... uh, than uh, Judah was because we've had the advantage of Israel and Judah to observe that God is consistent and that, uh, to paraphrase Billy Graham slightly, if God doesn't judge America, you'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah or Judah and Israel likewise. So um, in any case, well, we're in Jeremiah and I believe we are approximately chapter 15. We got through the end of chapter 14 last time and this time we are in uh, chapter 15. And uh, we're going at a little, going at it a little more cursorily than we normally do. We usually used to take a chapter a night in these studies with Jeremiah. We're going a little more aggressively uh, to cover the material, but I think that uh, will will prove appropriate as we go. So, uh, Jeremiah chapter fifteen, verse one. Then said the Lord unto me. Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth." And uh, and he, he, he makes mention to Jeremiah of two previous gentlemen who were also intercessors on behalf of the people. Uh, we could take a lot of time going into uh, Exodus 32, Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 9, 1 Samuel 7 and 12, and Psalm 99, a lot of passages. Uh, to refer to either Moses and or Samuel, um, interceding for the people. And if you go through the, you know, the time to do that study, you'll discover that um, uh, even they could not um, move uh, them, that um, they um, were in effect, ineffective at the stubborn and stiff-necked people. And so, um, Moses and Samuel had petitioned the Lord on behalf of the people, and uh, the Lord uh, uh, went forward. So, though, though Moses and Samuel, God says, stood before me, and in the minds of his readers, that is Jeremiah's readers, those were the two pillars, if you will. Moses with the Torah and Samuel more recently. Stood, though They stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Whose fault was that? Theirs, yes, in fact, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing as you go through. Uh, you know, it's interesting, some very close friends of ours that are not saved nor oriented to these things, uh, I remember vividly when they had seen a rerun of the Ten Commandments film, I think on television or something. They were intrigued by that. They were sort of sharing with us how that was interesting, but they just could not get over how, after all of that, there's a place in the film, late in the film, where once again, they want to go back to Egypt after all of that. You know? And their point was, uh, gee, you know, if God had done all that for them, wouldn't that be vivid in your minds and wouldn't it be different? And how interesting that is because it ain't different. You know, uh, Israel is us. They, uh, they again and again throughout the wilderness wanderings, again and again have to be taught the same lessons. You and I are even better beneficiaries. We have Jesus Christ. We have the, the illumination of the New Testament. And I suspect, as we examine our lives carefully, we find ourselves just as headstrong, um, grieving God in more ways than we can number, and perhaps most of all, by our ingratitude for what He has done. "'Cast them out of my sight,' he says here, and let them go forth," verse 1. Verse 2, "'And it shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Where shall we go? Then thou shalt tell them, thus saith the Lord, such as are for death to death.' And such as are for the sword, to the sword. And such as are for the famine, to the famine. And such as are for the captivity, to the captivity." Now, that may ring familiar in your ears as a similar phrase in the book of Revelation. Remember, let he that be filthy, be filthy still, and so forth. Verse 3, "'And, and I will appoint over them four kinds,' saith the Lord." The sword to slay, the dogs to tear, the fowls of heaven, and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. Isn't that great? Would you like the God would, you know God's provision is complete. Do you want him to provide that for you? Not too exciting, is it? What's the price of avoiding all this repentance? Did they repent? No, Verse four, "For I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. The reference here is that Manasseh was the one who, had, who at least by tradition, was the one that sawed Isaiah in half. But Manasseh was the guy who was the that really led the nation into idolatry. And all the, the troubles that Judah is experiencing now derives from their foregoing for, you know, for, of the worship of the Lord, and in lieu thereof, worshiping idols—that was introduced by. That's a heritage, if you will, from Manasseh. So, in that sense, his his introduction of all this caused all this grief. Verse five: For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Who shall bemoan thee? And who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward. Therefore, will I stretch out my hand against thee to destroy thee? I am weary with repenting. It's in the Manasseh, for if you're, those of you that are taking notes who want to dig into that about the Manasseh, that's in 2 Kings 21, 23, 24, in that range, if you're digging into that, okay? And... Um, But obviously, it's more than just Jeremiah's generation that'll be in view in this passage. So I'm not sure you need necessarily to go through the rigor of historically linking it because the scope of the language goes far beyond just that. So we'll just keep moving here. Verse 7, And I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land, and I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they return not from their ways. Their widows, get this phrase, this is a grabber, verse 8, their widows are increased to me above the sand of the seas. That's a lot of widows. Sons of Israel will be wiped out. Now, you may sound, you may say that, gee, I thought I, we take the Bible literally and there's an awful lot of sand. You mean there's more widows than that? You have to understand the Jewishness of the passage. There's a concept in Judaism that if you kill a man, you destroy a nation. Because they have this notion that if you kill a son, you you, you have in effect annihilated his progeny you see so there's a concept there that uh, if you kill a son make a you know or or make a widow by killing a husband you destroy not just one man you destroy a nation that would have come out of his bowels in subsequent generations that's a concept that you know you and I don't think that way but that's a very con- common concept in Judaism and so i wouldn't uh, you know, start trying to figure out how much sand is in the seashore, and see if there are that many widows in Israel. It's it's a, a means of expression that's not just figurative. It's literal, but in a in a gen, more generic sense than you and I would have a, have a tendency to focus on. But anyway, the widows are increased to me above the sand of the seas. I have brought them upon them against the mother of the young men, a spoiler at noonday. I have caused him to fall upon her suddenly and terrors upon the city. She that hath borne seven languisheth and hath died. Her Her son is gone down while it was yet day. She hath been ashamed and confounded, and the residue of them will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, saith the Lord. This is language, again, that is perhaps intrinsically Jewish. The concept of happiness for a woman is to have sons. Complete happiness would be seven sons. But here the woman with seven sons has a very short happiness because they're killed in one day. And that kind of language is peculiar to, to our ears because we're not used to that kind of, you know, uh, dealing in that kind of an idiom. But it's basically a idiomatic uh, expression within the in the Hebrew construction. So it's the idea of complete happiness being shortened is a way of, of saying that. Now, um, the next couple of verses are one of the most moving confessions that uh, a man can give. And Jeremiah here is going to profess his loneliness. Verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on interest, nor men have lent to me on interest, yet every one of them doth curse me. This concept of lending or borrowing is usually in business at least, you know, the concept here is that's, that's the usual basis for a disagreement. And it's not that there's something wrong with borrowing or lending. He's just saying, I haven't borrowed or lent. I mean, there's no reason, there's, there's no commerce upon which someone should be frustrated or upset with me. That's really what he's saying. I haven't either borrowed or lent, and yet, in spite of that, every one of them doth curse me. It's another way of saying it, is that uh, without cause. Verse 11, the Lord has said, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Verily I will cause the enemy to entreat thee in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. Shall iron break the northern iron and the bronze? Now, your King James may say steel in that verse. I don't know if you have the word steel in your translation. Shall iron break the northern iron with uh, and, and the bronze? Now, bronze, by the way, is a alloy of copper and tin. But something else that uh, you wouldn't know unless you had dug into the thing, At this in this era... There was an unusually hard iron available from the region of the Black Sea. And and as a result, there was certain kinds of iron that are uh, were sometimes translated by the King James translators differently. So it's just very, very hard metal. No big deal. Those of you that keep know that steel didn't really come till later. Huh? So uh, don't make a thing of it. The word uh, is properly translated bronze there anyway. But the northern iron may be referring to this very peculiar kind of iron that was available uh, regionally in the the area of the Black Sea. Thy substance and thy treasures will I give to spoil without price, and, and that for all thy sins, even in all thy borders. And I will make thee to pass with thine enemies into a land which thou knowest not, for a fire is kindled in mine anger, which shall burn upon you. God is upset. And as a result, they're going to be enslaved in a land which they do not know, namely Babylon. Babylon, in the primary sense, and there's many, much of these passages, you'll, many of these passages you'll quickly sense go far beyond the Babylonian captivity, which is very definitive, a major milestone in their history, but some of the language you will sense goes to the diaspora after the crucifixion of Christ, where they're scattered to all nations. Many times, there's almost a slip of the pen here with Jeremiah, where he talks about them scattered out among the nations broadly. In Jeremiah's mind, he may just be dealing with the Babylonians as generic Gentiles. But in fact, the prophecy is fulfilled after the crucifixion of Christ, where they are scattered among all nations for not 70 years, but virtually almost 2,000. Well, 2,484 years and two months and three days, right? But that's, we're getting to that. That's another story. Verse 15 and 16 will be familiar to you, students of the book of Revelation. Let's, uh, let's get into this here. Oh, Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me and avenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy lo-. By the way, that's a bothersome passage to New Testament types. Gee, Lord, avenge me of my persecutors. I bother you. You know, I thought I was supposed to turn the other cheek. That's your test question. You can study that over the week, and we'll talk about it next time. Right? The idea, though, of, of Jeremiah, and it happens many times in the Old Testament, but particularly Jeremiah, uh, will call down God's anger on his enemies, and that sounds so non-New Testament. Can you find that in the New Testament? Absolutely. Examine carefully in the Book of Revelation the plea of the souls that are under the altar in the sixth, what is fifth seal, whatever is that they also call. Hey, when are you going to avenge the blood of your... And so, uh, that's an idea that is uh, the concept of being collinear with God's righteous indignation is not unbiblical. I don't recommend you run around and try to put yourself collinear with God's indignation. I'm not suggesting that. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Verse 16, interesting verse. Thy words were found and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. Boy, there's a lot here. Um, If you want to go with me to Ezekiel chapter 3, you'll discover in the first three verses of Ezekiel chapter 3, we have a similar passage to remind you of our Ezekiel study. It actually starts three verses earlier in the end of chapter 2. It says, But thou, son of man, hear I say unto thee, Uh, Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat what I give thee. The Holy Spirit is saying both in Jeremiah here and one other place I'm going to show you in a minute is you need to digest. You need to digest his food, his word. You sometimes talk about digesting a lesson. We use that figure of speech, not too commonly perhaps, but there are phrases of that kind, right? I really need to digest what he said, right? That's very biblical. That's what Jeremiah said in chapter 15, verse uh, 16, and it's what uh, Ezekiel is instructed to do here. And it goes on about the scroll here, and verse 10, he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written in it lamentation and mourning and woe. What scroll in the Bible is written on the inside and on the outside? And sealed with seven seals, right on target, a scroll that we find in uh, Revelation 5, 6, and becomes such a prominent element in the book. And moreover, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, the Son of Man, Eat what thou findest, eat this scroll, go and speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he did cause me to eat that scroll, and, and it filled my stomach with this scroll that I give thee, verse 3, then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth like honey for sweetness. Right? You know how it goes right? Now, and you can dig more of this on your your own, but I'm not going to take you to Revelation chapter 4, 5, and 6 where that scroll is. I'm going to take you rather than that to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. This is all by way of review. Those of you that haven't, I strongly encourage you to study the book of Revelation carefully. It's not a bad place for a new Christian to jump in. It's an even better place for a seasoned Christian to refresh himself. It's the only book of the Bible with a promise that it has a special blessing. No other book has the audacity to say, read me, I'm special. Lots of books say, read the Bible, read the Word. But only one book has the effrontery to say, read me, I'm unique and special. That's the book of Revelation. So I encourage you to study it. And we won't digress and take the whole book tonight but we'll take just a couple of comments a couple of comments in chapter 10 where we have um i'm doing this from memory i hope it's chapter 10 yes and diverse uh we we see the angel here near the end of the chapter verse 9 chapter 10 verse 9 i went and the angel said unto him give me the little scroll he said unto him take it and eat it up and he shall and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took a little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again about many peoples and tongues and and uh, and nations and tongues and kings. Very interesting phrase, strange phrase, because there in Revelation, as we see that, idiomatically you visualize this guy munching on a scroll, right? Not if you're a student of the Old Testament, because if you're reading this from now on, you'll think, gee, that happened to Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And and it's an idiom, a very Jewish idiom. The book of Revelation is very, very Jewish. That's part of the key to really unraveling it. You'll understand the book of Revelation well if you've commanded your Old Testament. Conversely, if you study the book of Revelation through our tapes or whatever, then you also have a great chance to get an Old Testament perspective quickly. One of the reasons I'm such a enthusiast about the Bible is the evidence of design, how integrated a whole it is, and the enti- these 66 books all come to focus in the book of Revelation. Now, when you go back and you read Jeremiah and so forth, you come across these phrases, you are conscious of the fact that a single author is responsible for the entire book, even though 40 different people over several thousand years happened to pen parts of it. Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. That's what you and I are supposed to do. We're supposed to eat them. There's another thing in this verse that's provocative, if you're very careful watching it. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Why? For I'm called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. It's one of these verses, and there's many of them, but they're very important, that link his word and his name in a very mystical way. His word and his name. Great. I enjoyed the... Now, by the way, Jeremiah doesn't say this, if I recall. I don't think he does, but we can... were those words sweet in his mouth? You bet. Where were they in his belly? So bitter they made him weep. He's the weeping prophet. So, the experience of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I don't think, is any different than John's experience in Revelation 10. There's a sweetness to it, and yet... As you digest it, there's a bitterness, because Jeremiah, on the one hand, was privileged to be on a face-to-face basis where he really is God's messenger to his nation. That's a position of privilege and something that Jeremiah cherished, despite the fact that his particular message was extremely bitter for him to deal with—the certainty of the judgment on the nation that he loved so dearly. Verse 17. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat, al- I sat alone, because of my hand, oh, excuse me, of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me like a liar, like the waters that fail? Strange word. The word there is the deceptive brook. And you and I are not familiar with the deceptive brook, but in Israel and the Middle East, you are. And this is a brook that only occurs when there's flash floods. We see it in California. There's a lot of what we call the wash. We have different words for it, where it's a brook that's unreliable because it'll only be a brook when there's snow melting or some unusual circumstance. It's not a brook you can count on. So the concept among people in that terrain is a what's called a deceptive brook. It's a brook that when you go there and you need it, ain't there, you see. And so there's a concept of it. That's what these waters that fail is, is, is referring to. Only good after a downpour. Now, Jeremiah is complaining in the last few verses, you know, why is my pain prepared? I mean, he really is upset about this. You know, I, I have not been in the assembly of the mockers and rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. That is, for these people. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will thou be altogether unto me like a liar, like waters that fail? In other words, he is really upset. Jeremiah And God answers him in the next few verses. This is a very amazing passage as God's... uh, in effect, rebuking Jeremiah for his hour of despair. Verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord, If thou return, you can always put the word repent in there, huh? then will I bring thee again, and thou, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fortified bronze wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.